We're starting a podcast. I'm Raymond. And I'm Zara. We're from the Bates Multifaith Chaplaincy. The Multifaith Chaplaincy is for everybody at Bates, spiritual, religious, non-religious, secular, or however people may identify. We value curiosity and create spaces for conversation, contemplation, and connection. We've named our podcast Buen Camino, or Good Journey in Spanish, because we'll be talking to people from the Bates community about their personal stories, the paths they've taken, and where they found meaning along the way. Our very first guest is James Reese, who's the Associate Dean for International Student Programs. Dean Reese supports international students during the initial transition and throughout their Bates experiences. He's been at Bates since 1977. Dean Reese sat down with Multifaith Fellows Mamta Saraugi and Matt Suslovic to discuss his childhood, how he came to Bates, his passion for higher education, and where he finds meaning in life. Hi, Dean Reese. Welcome to Buen Camino. Today's first question is, where were you born and what was going on around you when you were a child? Well, thank you. Glad to be here. I was born in Selma, Alabama, and I was in 1955. I lived on a high school campus. My father was the minister of the church on campus, and my mother was a teacher in the high school on the campus. Being born in Alabama in the 50s, and I'm African-American, I was exposed to the U.S. societal issue of Jim Crowism, segregation of the races. I actually attended segregated schools, as an example, and facing all the aspects of those negative aspects of that existence, you know. Lots of things were closed, you know, restaurants, you know, theaters, zoos, you know, I can go through a list of actually 23 places where there were limitations or, or prohibitions in terms of where African-Americans could not go. Interestingly, I knew that all the people in our community were trying to change that when we lived next to a college campus. So those students were going downtown to do sit-ins, lots and lots and lots of discussions politically and otherwise in terms of, you know, making change. At age seven, I recall very clearly the I Have a Dream speech given by Dr. Martin Luther King in Washington, D.C. in August of that year. And so I had this interesting existence to be able to observe what was going on in those days. But faith and religion and church were a part of the political scene of, of life in the South at that time and all over the country. I observed and recall very clearly how People of many faiths came together to try to push the, that portion of the society to make for legal change. It's so important to me to recall the feelings and the inspirations of how change was going to come about, you know, in its various ways at that time. I remember it almost like yesterday, not only the speech, but what was going on beforehand famous water hose scenes in Birmingham in March of that year in 63. Watched those on television every day. My family happened to know people in Alabama who were associated with those events. This was all leading to change that, as a child, I knew needed to occur so that there was uh, more openness and more fairness and equity in the society. And so the speech occurred on August 28, 63. And then on September 16th that same year, the church bombing occurred in Birmingham, and four young girls lost their lives and there were many more injuries. And so with the church being the hub of organization for the civil rights movement in many ways, and our church, our church right across the street from our house, you know, being that for our community, you know, as a seven-year-old, I was afraid. I, wow, you know, who would bomb a church? Who would, you know, kill young girls? This is how a seven-year-old uh, thinks. And so I remember for, you know, some 
month or two, I was a bit nervous about going to church. We went. I don't even remember talking so much about with my parents about I don't want to go to church. I didn't make it that explicit, but I think they could see some hesitancy. And I recall some conversation. Oh, it's okay. We're going to be fine. And we were. We actually didn't even live in a, a place of threat. But, you know, it just, I deducted that if that church could be bombed and those girls could lose their life, then maybe it could happen, you know, in our community also. I also had a sense that all the efforts were not going to stop because of that church bombing, because of that unfortunate incident. There were the speeches, you know, the King speeches and everyone else, you know, that continued on. And as the, in 63, that tragedy occurred, then in June of 64 was the month when the President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, signed the Civil Rights Act, saying that public places can no longer be segregated. And so in between there, the King's speech, the Birmingham church bombing, the Kennedy assassination, those pieces and some others, you know, led to momentum in the Congress, you know, and people talking to their Congress people from all over the country and the efforts from all over the country leading to, we must change this in our society. And so all of that led to the change of everything being open. You know, public facilities were no longer segregated, were open to everyone, regardless of um, background. And so that was a high achievement uh, for our society as far as I'm concerned and, and the efforts of all the community people in our community and all across the South and other places, you know, have been achieved. And I will say this and to close, the day that the law changed, the next day, uh, our family of five, my parents, my older sister, younger brother, we, uh, we went to McDonald's. You know, McDonald's has presence in our society today. So we went to McDonald's. I couldn't go to McDonald's two days before that. And um, I'm not saying it was the most important thing ever, but we went. And I'll, f- I'll never forget how we drove into the, the uh, parking lot. My father turned and gave my sister $5 and said, go up and order food. And she went up and ordered. And my father stood outside the, uh, the car just looking at the three of us, ordering the food. And I turned back and I looked at his face and it was, it was um, I don't know how to describe it, but it was a moment. It was a moment I will use accomplishment. It was a moment of sincerity. It was a moment of, yes, this is the way it's supposed to be. He felt strongly in a moment. I could observe that on him. And we got back into the car and, um, you know, besides going to the McDonald's and having that be a, a new experience, I knew it was a very important moment for my parents. So all the efforts of all the community members across those many places across the South and other places really, you know, contribute to a, a very important piece of my existence and our existence. That's beautiful. Well, if we were to borrow a question from On Being, that's one of the favorite podcasts of the Multifaith Chaplaincy, did you have a particular religious or spiritual background in your childhood? Yes, as mentioned, um, I had a a very strong one in terms of my father being a Presbyterian minister, and so I grew up in the church. And I've thought about it a couple ways. Sure, by being a family member of a minister, then there's the regular pattern of going to church and all the activities. I jokingly say that I never woke up any Sunday and debated with my family whether we were going to church or not. You know, we we went to church. But it also gives uh, uh, time to consider what is this all about? What does it mean to us? What does it mean to me? 
And so by needing to at first and then willing to later listen to all the sermons, observe all the ceremonies going on within the uh, life of our church or any church, I could reflect upon what does it mean in terms of the lessons for life and what we you know, learn on this planet as individuals. I think everyone in their own existence, whether they're in a church or not, in terms of a church family or not, you know, comes to a decision point in terms of what this faith means to them. I'm sure at different points um, of my life, I would consider um, how strongly I was a believer and why I believed. But I was going to focus today a little bit on listening to those lessons. And so I would listen to the lessons through the sermons so much, even came to memorize a lot of my father's sermons. You know, I said, Dad, if you ever get sick, I can just fill in for you. you know? But I reflected more about what, a lot of the messages. And some of them I recall and retain today very clearly at length. One, for example, was, you know, when you're having troubles, put it in the Lord's hands. So that means many things, in, but it's inspirational. I have used that in my own existence in many kind of moments where I needed to kind of consider what to do. And I uh, was glad I had that particular lesson, that line to utilize, you I mean, and so it, it plays on so many levels in terms of, uh, you know, comfort, spirit, hope, future, belief. So you would say that the religious tradition of your childhood has stayed with you as an adult? Yes, absolutely. It goes back to a core, to thoughts, you know, in a collegiate set, setting of what is my faith versus, you know, other religions on the earth? How do we, you know, think about that? How do I think about this in terms of some of the Situations going on around the world involving various religions, and sometimes when those religions come into contact with each other, if not conflict with each other. So there's a strong basis to kind of reflect upon all of those and, and actually be balanced about it, <clears throat> different from thinking, well, my religion or our religion is better than someone else's. You know, those lessons alone for me were learned long ago not to approach it from that point of view, but to do some com- contrasts and some comparisons to see what um, individuals and groups and people get out of their faith. And so, yes, I've thought about that a lot. Um, I happen to be in a marriage where my uh, spouse, my wife is not a Christian background. Um, she happened to be, to be Buddhist. And so there was another opportunity to think about how we would live our existence, especially if we've gone on to have children, and at their young ages of uh, 13 and 11 now, we have decided to let them learn from all sides and then choose what they would like to do as time goes forward. So the choices haven't been made yet, and we'll let those come as they may. But I've been intrigued, if not fascinated, that they know a lot more about Christianity and, and the Bible and, and all. And, of course, they know a lot about Buddhism, too. So that's been... Uh, I'll use the word fulfilling to have the way that I've learned to practice and notice the way that my wife has learned to practice be, I'll say, you know, manageable is not the best word, but it works for our children to kind of listen and learn and think and reflect and ask questions. And that's what we do with our faith all through our existences anyway. And so I'm glad that both of our experiences in terms of our particular Faith has allowed us to teach our children that that way. You mentioned how community members cause change, and you notice a lot of change on college campuses. What has it been like for you living on college campuses your whole life? <laughs> yeah, I've had that uh, fortune and privilege to live on 
campuses my whole life, high school campus, the first three years of my life in Alabama, nine years in Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee, four more years attached to closely to a campus in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then um, my family moved to New Jersey and um, for my last two years of high school, we weren't on a campus that, those two years, you know, I kind of felt the absence. Then I went to college and then I came to Bates immediately following college to stay two years, but I've actually been here a few years. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and that equals 41 for people listening, 41 wonderful, glorious years. So the college campus is one of always a future and aspiration. There's developing thought going on. There's talent abounding in so many ways, music and art and theater, you know, athletic field, you know, speeches, debate. All these things are going on in addition to the rich learning that everyone is having by virtue of their professors and the interactions. And, you know, so the life of students involves all those things, including reading and writing papers. And to always have been around people who have talked about what they're learning and how and the questions that emanate from that learning has always been exciting. So it's enriching to be on a college campus. We all know that by our experience here. And I do see here in this community of Lewiston and Auburn, and the communities where I've lived, there are people who come to campuses frequently to have moments and updates and experiences of, you know, art and culture and education, philosophical thought. And uh, so it's, it's very inspiring. So what year did you graduate from college? Yes, I graduated in 1977. Do you remember what you did the day after you graduated college? Wow, well, that's a great question. If I recall anything from the next day, I was kind of moved by thinking about what I had been doing most recently. I completed my thesis that year. I had great conversations with my friends, you know, in the latter last days. I knew I was going to miss them. I was kind of considering what was going to happen after that with them. And I was also kind of thinking about what can I do? And it sounds almost corny. What can I do with my education? And <laughs> how am I going to, you know, read something and see something or go somewhere and say, oh, I know about that, you know? This raises this question for me. And so not a, a moment of, like, you know, complete knowledge about everything, but an ability to ask questions, good educated questions, we'll say that, about something that's going on and reading about in the newspaper or to visit a, a museum and, and understand that, you know, there's some good questions about the art or artifacts of which I was looking at. So that was that. And then it was also a bit of the, oh, I'm really going to miss the friends. And, um, you know, I think everyone thinks about that the day after. So I know that you've uh, advised students to pack their rooms before the graduation festivities begin. Where does that piece of wisdom come from? Yes, that's one of my great speeches and of advice to seniors. And so, on the day of graduation, I thought as an uh, educated young man, I had concluded that, you know, family was visiting, it's an important moment for everyone, almost more important for them than me, or, or equally important. And so, long story short, I, my family, they only saw my room on the day of graduation, and that was after the ceremony, as we were walking back to my dorm. I was feeling quite good. I was remembering that moment of crossing the stage and uh, treasuring that. And I had in my mind that, you know, well, 
I'll go in the room, I'll throw my belongings in the bags. We had three cars available, just heave them right into the trunk of all the cars and we'll be off in 90 minutes, no problem. Well, I unlocked the door to my room and my room was immaculate, it looked so good. And my mother said, what? You haven't packed yet? What are we going to do? You know, we're, we're trying to leave. I said, no, mom, it's okay. You know, we'll, we'll be out of here real soon. You know, so, no, you should have been packing. You know, what have you been doing? Well, I was going to answer that. And, uh, and so she uh, became excited, if not a bit angered about <laughs> what was going on. And, and I was trying to make my excuses, you know, kind of feeling like I was seven or eight. <laughs> and, and not a college graduate. And so the more I talked, the, the, the worse it was getting. And, you know, I was trying to move and, and pack and defend myself at the same time. It wasn't working. I have a, as I was mentioned, older sister and older brother. And I kind of looked their way to, you know, this is a moment I need some help, you know. <laughs> and when your siblings move away from the situation and start backing up, then I knew I was on my own. And so <laughs> I said to myself, Okay, I'll just have to take it for whatever length of time it was. Interestingly, it was 90 minutes. You know, I was correct. I was tabulated everything well as a college graduate, but that meant nothing to my mother. <laughs> so I tell to seniors, whatever you do in the final week of school, make sure you pack your room. <laughs> Bait seniors, you are now advised. Yes. And so as you were driving off with all of your belongings now packed up in the car, were you driving off knowing what you were going to be doing next? In that moment, I did not know in terms of like a, a job lined up at all. And, and interestingly, in those times, you know, I guess we do the math how many years ago it was. And I look at these patterns that, that have changed over the, each decade. Uh, not having a job in those days wasn't one terrible or un, uh, unusual. Maybe half my friends had a job lined up and the rest of us were going to be looking. So I had applied to some uh, places and I had to... Uh, applied to college campuses for positions there, some in admissions in some several places, and I had even applied to Bates by that time, hoping that I would get an interview at some point. So that interview did come in the, the latter part of June. But my plan was to get home, assess things, and then send out some more resumes and cover letters and have a little bit more time to be more aggressive about that and hope, if not assume, that something might come my way as an, for an interview and go in and do a good job. And Dean Reese, do you feel that you have a calling or passion in your life? And if so, how did you find it? Well, it's an interesting question. I, coming through high school years and through college, I looked at it from the point of view of some things that I could do. There was also an element then back in those days that maybe it's not so much true these days that something would find me, you know, I would see an ad and get interested and, you know, and apply and they would like my candidacy. Or someone would come along and say, there's an opportunity over here. Have you ever thought about this area? And so I was open to those, those, those aspects where I was thinking more formally about, let me decide the things that I would like to do. Now, college administration had been something I've been thinking about, as I mentioned, through the several years based largely upon having grown up on campuses. And so I had even chatted with my administrators at my college about that. I attended Middlebury College. And, you know, they had offered some advice and a couple of examples of some opportunities. And so that was the, the highest thing on my list. I kind of almost assumed that it might start through admissions more than in student affairs. But 
fortunately, Bates, Bates alone had this incredible position where a young person right out of college would get their feet wet for two years and then go off to graduate school. That was the plan, the model. And so I was really fortunate to get that opportunity to the interview here and was uh, offered the position. So in terms of going back to the question of passion, I think about it this way. In working in a college, it wouldn't be just the job that I'm doing. In student affairs, of course, you have many opportunities to advise students about whatever's going on in their existence. And if I had been working in college admissions, then it would be a little bit less formal opportunities for that, but the presence on the campus was going to equal that. So by going to all the activities and getting to know people, if you're admitting people and then they're at the school, you maintain some of those associ- some of those associations. And so you could be involved in, in terms of the, the life of the campus. And, and maybe one way this is important is that our society, you know, and even today in our formal presence on our campus and many other campuses, of, you know, offices of equity and inclusion or the topic of diversity or whatever we want to name it, you know, these days, I've always been interested in that, you know, actually stemming from the early life experiences of the society, you know, being integrated or not, you know, and and becoming more so, and the experiences of everyone uh, who comes to a campus. And so um, that was a portion of what I had in mind also in terms of, you know, working on a college campus. And so that was a, a driving piece in addition to the great conversations you have with people about their starting in their first year and their ending in their fourth year and all the many things, many, many, many things they've learned along the way. The insights that it's not so much me instructing them in those, but gathering their insights for people to make their own conclusions. I just think that's an incredible way to, to live then and now. Just really enjoy that aspect of it all. So that that's one of the passions. Mm-hmm. And I know that on this campus you are... N- so well known for your ability to advise students and help them have these conversations about making decisions. But I think I'm definitely very curious is how did you, the master advisor, turn to advisors when you were at our age looking and contemplating what you wanted to do? Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for the question. Kind of not not newly reflecting on it, but I've gone going back to try to pinpoint what was going on, how and why. And so I would say that a variety of lessons informed me that it's very, very, very important to listen in life. And, you know, we could speak for an hour about what does listening really mean. But I do think there's an important element of sensing if it's the right answer, all right? And so when people are making decisions about their future or even the choice that they're going to write a paper on, you know, then for each individual, that's a slightly different answer that would be the correct one. And they need to go with some inner sense of what they might feel. And they might need to know where does that inner sense come from, you know? Is it based upon having such feelings and those feelings have worked pretty well in the past? There's uh, is it feelings of, you know, trying to be objective about a matter or is it a feeling about being so strongly interested in one pathway that you're gonna take that pathway? If a musical artist is trying to mimic someone else in their existence and then says, I really feel like I take the, the music in a different direction and it will be great and very valued, then a person should probably do that. And so in going back to the listening part in terms of conversations with people, especially students in my existence, I try to listen and then offer back, it sounds like you're saying this, is this what you're saying? And having a high interest in tr- trying to 
understand and have people talk through and talk out what they are thinking, then that goes on to unveil and identify conclusions that would work best for them and they would make their decisions. And a lot of those decisions would even involve, I'm going to try it this way and then I'll have a slight plan, plan A minus, we'll call it, (laughs) plan B, (laughs) and then and go in those ways. And so, so that's the answer to the question in terms of a kind of a serious approach to it. Mm-hmm. And was working in college administration always your plan A, or were there some plan A minuses that <laughs> you felt yourself being pulled towards? My plan A minuses were, I always had this interest in being an airline pilot, and I heard erroneously, and I'm fine with it, that you have to have perfect 2020 vision to be a pilot, and I didn't happen to have that from a family where that was just not <laughs> true about all of us. And then uh, I played sports growing up, uh, enjoyed all that very much, and maybe a little bit surprised in my final year, many, many of my basketball teammates came to me and said, hey, you know, have you ever thought about coaching? And you, you know, you, they never said you would make a great coach, and no one was that explicit. They just said, you know, you, you know a lot. You, you know, you might be good at it. <laughs> so I took it as a compliment. and. And I, and I thought about it very clearly at that time. I said to myself, wow, you know, I, I love the sport, but I'm not sure I should go into something that, that I, you know, completely love so much. And so I you know, wouldn't be able to distance myself from it uh, as much as I probably should because I think there needs to be a balance in such things in life. Mm-hmm. And on the subject of finding that balance, um, research shows that young people are increasingly looking to work as a source of meaning in their lives. How do you think we and or Bates should be preparing students to find meaning in today's world and should work be the only place they find it? Mm, I don't think work should be the only place that they find it. And I do look at it as a a balance. Um, And uh, I'm going to say something about that word balance and then come back to the question. As I was starting here, I came, not, not that I came up with it, but I thought about and would hear conversations almost for the first time about balancing one's existence, you know. And I think a part of that is that in college you, you're in a major and you're doing important things as study abroad and, you know, there's you know, collegiate activities and music and art. And so this all done, but, you know, we don't think about it in terms of balancing, you know, you can't balance a week when you have to rehearse for the play every day. <laughs> you need to go and do that. Then you need to finish your thesis. And so... Those peak points are are all normal, but in terms of um, getting out and starting a work life, where you know, quite honestly, you know, for most jobs that people do in life, there's less homework at night than in college, mm-hmm. right? And so there's an opportunity to balance things and to uh, work well and hard aggressively to um, do the things in life that people feel are important to their own well-being that could be exercise and sports and activity as such it can be the arts in terms of this this means it's a whole combination of those and so um and so when i arrived here i had the opportunity to to uh, balance um everything more in a more conscious way and it was kind of almost like a new lesson coming in you know um, for me and so uh, back on the question i think that work needs that balance but within work, I think people need to look at it in terms of, is it fulfilling? Is it fulfilling in enough ways so that it 
feels intriguing. There's learning going on. There's progress progress in terms of what one knew when they started it all and what they're moving on towards, you know, within the work. Is the work going to continue to expand, you know, into the future in a satisfactory manner? And, um, you know, as a humorous thought, you know, when they talk about, you know, fairy tales and stories growing up and, and at the end everyone lives happily ever after, I think life should change, you know, and say, at the end of these stories, we should say, everyone lived happily ever, uh, happily ever after with lots of communication and understanding, you know, <laughs> that was given. And so in our existence, I, I find that in terms of balancing them, we need to think about and try to comprehend what would be meaningful, even if there are new endeavors, you know, um, you know, coming each of our ways and look at, look at a range of things to do um, in our existences and, uh, and go ahead and try those. It's almost like in college, they say, well, try lots of things, you know, and that is true. And I do think that after college, try lots of things is also true. Dean Reese, you've spoken so much about passion and balance and travel, but what is it, that one thing that gives you meaning deep down? Wow, great question. Well, I would probably say, I'm not sure I've put this into words before, so I'll, I'll try my best here. To lately, I have been really focusing on the lessons that the older people, not just parents, but the people even older than that, were trying to instill in me and others as young people or children and young people as we were coming along. And so it's not about the lesson lessons, it's more about what were the values they were trying to identify and convey to us um, in, in, those, in, in those teachings and exercises, you know. And so, you know, Every child has, you know, the experience of being in some group or club or something, and there's a older person um, who was running it, and they would lead the activities every week, and they would always come out and say, "Well, in life, you should do this. In life, you should do that. You know, yes, you should treat people fairly. You should share and share alike. You should uh, make sure that the last person is included. You know, maybe I'm thinking about the the lessons that I learned and and valued, and and I kind of thought, think about, borrowing from today's questions, some of the passion with which they would actually talk about those things. And uh, oftentimes those examples, I'm going to use the word fortunately, didn't have anything to do with money and wealth and those kinds of measures that, you know, exist on our, our planet today everywhere. But they had to do with uh, sensibilities about others being instilled so that Ultimately, we could all live and work together better. And, and so in the, uh, I, I, I wasn't, I hadn't thought to give this example today, but I mentioned in terms of just African-American life, you know, the, my own family background, I was uh, always impressed that my parents would talk about some aspect of history and African-American life that was maybe not as present in the, earlier history books and maybe I learned about these things more in college and later. 
And so, uh, and I love this moment. I said to my parents maybe 15 years ago, I said, you know, you talk about so much history and, and you talk about it with such compassion and pride in terms of things that people worked through, through the Depression years and afterwards and, and uh, even the whole Jim Crow era. Um, I said, what text did your teachers give you? What text did your teachers use to teach you these history lessons about African-American life? And I loved the moment when my parents looked at me and they started laughing and they said, <laughs> we didn't have any text, which actually made sense. <laughs> the teachers learned that all on their own and they shared it all out. It was all shared through the whole community of the adults and teachers and, and educators. And, uh, and, and I thought, wow, what a powerful piece that those many lessons um, were present, vivid, informative. They included these values that I talked about. And, and, and they were so rich that they had giant impact on my parents and they even shared those things with us. Our, the, um, their three children and, and even shared those with their grandchildren, right? You know, my father, and it's kind of a religious uh, point, somewhere 25 years ago, we were talking, you know, my father, I know him really well, and so this was not a surprise. But he came out at dinner one night, and he was talking about some situation, and he thought it wasn't going well, and he said, you know, I don't understand this. The quickest way to go to hell is to not help somebody. And that was the end of the line. <laughs> so we all looked, and that made sense, but he was just, he said, well, we're talking about all this, but I have to be emphatic. <laughs> and he said that. <laughs> and I loved it because he actually believes that. And I thought about it. I said, does he really believe that? And he does. So I'm glad to have been around that. And, and so he and others and lots and lots of el elders have contributed consciously values teaching, values lessons that I'm thinking about more now than I almost ever did in, in my life. Is helping people what gives meaning? Absolutely. It does. Thank you so much, Dean Reese. You're very welcome. Thank you to the two of you. Thank you to Colin Kelly and the Bates Digital Media Studio. The Multifaith Fellows, Multifaith Chaplain Brittany Longstorff, and James Reese for sharing his story with us. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us next time.